How to create a glitch, the biological mechanism. In this episode we will be amalgamating material from the complete series and from the monologues to assist the listener in understanding the biological mechanisms underlying one's bodily rhythms. To start out, we begin with the concept introduced in the complete series, as a reality composed of an expectation field. There are in fact two ways that two expectation fields can interact. First, if they are the same expectation, they can resonate. Second, if they are of divergent expectation, they will be discordant. Now, life fundamentally abhors discordance, which means that the discordance will have to be resolved somehow. But first, I'd like to elaborate the discordance a bit. When two expectation fields interact and there is discordance, this manifests as tension within the common expectation field just as holding contrary ideas within the mind at the same time manifests in the body as tension. That tension must be eliminated somehow before it produces what is ultimately a glitch. The time it takes for that discordance to be eliminated is called the substitution time. If that discordance is not eliminated before it produces a glitch, then the time it takes for the common expectation field to correct, the glitch is the correction time. A correction time manifests as an altered state of higher than normal social tension. Thus, we can say, that all bodily tension and tension created by discordance within the common expectation field can be measured by the concept of the substitution time. In the above diagram, the time it takes for the group emotional tension to return to baseline is the substitution time. The manner by which it goes from the peak to the baseline is through what are called postural releases. Postural releases are movements of posture which represent one person giving in to the expectation field of another. Thus, a postural release is any movement which transitions the individual from a discordant posture or expression to a consonant one, mirroring. The above diagram should be understood within the context of the below diagram which shows that mirroring within the social grouping will degenerate as the group emotional tension increases and will resolve once the emotional tension reaches baseline. Now, identifying these postural releases within a social setting provides one an opportunity to increase the likelihood of creating a glitch. As these postural releases are necessary to eliminate the discordance between two expectation fields, the elimination of the postural release, or its delay, should elongate the substitution time and therefore increase the likelihood of a correction. Using the methods described above under the headings postural exercises and social exercises, has the effect of altering the normal dialogue of a social exchange, thereby dislodging these postural releases in time. So, to start off, I discussed in previous podcasts and in the book How to Create a Glitch in the Matrix, how social tension manifests as a lack of mirroring between two individuals interacting in a social environment. Now, starting out with two individuals, you can say that one of the individuals will be tonic and the other will be dominant. Essentially, what that means is one individual will maintain a stable level of social tension through their expressed actions, words and movements, and the other individual will excite or create social tension, which is alleviated by the tonic. So. The role of the tonic is to maintain a specific low level of social tension within the interaction. The role of the second individual the dominant is to create social tension, which is then alleviated by the tonic. Now you can take this bidirectional relationship and apply the same principles to larger groups of interacting people. 
but the point of essentially getting that is that individuals who interact in a social setting, the social tension manifests as a result of them forming dialectical or idiosyncratic postures and posing divergent postures and posing, which ultimately creates discordance between their expectation fields, consonants re-established by the formation of mirroring as between those two individuals. But those are the principles by which social tension is managed. But the existence of postural releases also plays a role, and specifically postural releases involve the giving in of one individual to the other party, to their social status within the social environment and the transitioning of divergent or antithetical postures and posing to a consonant or mirroring one. Now, generally, it would be the tonic individual who is mirrored and the dominant individual who exhibits postural releases. Now, I'd like to jump into another topic as it relates to tonal form in this particular analysis. Now, attraction is also a principle in music, just as it is a principle in human dynamics. But suffice it to say that when an individual transitions from a state of lower tension to higher tension and cycles through those states, we see the same characteristic of attraction between that individual and another individual reflective of this of the tension which is dissipated or created or cycled through as part of the process of the social exchange. In this episode, I'll be building upon some of the ideas set out in the season 2, episode 3 in relation to the tonic and dominant social participants in a social exchange. Now, this idea essentially is in relation to the relationship between the tonic and the dominant social participants and how their relationship effectively alters the nature of a social exchange. Now, first of all, it's important to note that as I described in Season 2, Episode 3, the tonic maintains a low level of social tension during the course of a social dialogue. The dominant exhibits postural releases and largely mirrors the tonic individual in between each postural release. Now, the significance of this is important because the tonic only maintains their low level of social tension by and through the postural releases of the second individual who is the dominant. This means that the dominant has some measure of control over the internal states of the tonic, because as social tension builds and the tonic awaits a postural release from the dominant he's going to find, or she's going to find her internal states to become stretched the tension increased with all sorts of concomitant problems associated with that. So that's the first point I'd like to make. Now, the second point I'd like to make relates to the orientation of the two individuals and the consequences of that orientation. So I've used the word orientation to describe a great number of different concepts in these books and podcasts. I described how a gateway is created by a common orientation relative to some object. But what I'm talking about with the word orientation here is in relation to their emotional orientation. So, it's not a spatial orientation, it's an emotional orientation. And there are essentially two forms of emotional orientation. The first belongs to the tonic and the second belongs to the dominant. The first orientation, which belongs to the tonic. In that orientation, the individual's attention is fixed upon the environment or some object in the environment. As a result of that, the individual's attention is object-oriented, oriented and objective-oriented. So, the focus of the first orientation individual is on some physical task or some object in the environment. The second orientation, which is held by the dominant, involves the attention of the dominant being fixed on themselves relative to the tonic. So, there's an element of self-consciousness in the second orientation. 
and essentially what this means is that the attention of the tonic is focused on the environment. The attention of the dominant is focused on themselves relative to the tonic. This is how the social tension of the pairing is essentially managed. Now, the importance of this first orientation, the second orientation arrangement or relationship, is that it creates something called emotional coupling, which is to say the emotional state of the two individuals becomes linked together. And the reason for that is that every time a postural release is initiated by the dominant, the tonic individual obtains a release and that release conditions his or her action towards the unconscious actions of the dominant. And basically, what that means is the second orientation individual develops a measure of control over the emotional states of the tonic individual. So, although the tonic individual maintains a low level of tension throughout, which is an advantage in one way, it's also a disadvantage in another way because the intentions of the tonic become linked to the intentions of the dominant. Now there's another aspect of this relationship as well, which is that although the intentions or emotional state of the tonic is linked to the actions of the dominant, the intention of the tonic is fixed on the environment, which makes them more capable in a practical sense of completing objectives in a spatial sense. So, the trade-off between this form of emotional coupling is that the individual who is tonic achieves some measure of improvement in their focus and in their ability to accomplish objective-oriented tasks, whereas the second-oriented individual acquires control over the first-orientated individual. So, there's a trade-off between these two relationships as to the ultimate implications of it. Now what is the significance of this relative to the thesis of this podcast? Well, unfortunately for the second orientation individuals, in order to utilize the tangential action method of producing a glitch, one has to essentially put themselves in a position where they can maintain a first orientation stance. And the reason for that is because one's attention must be fixed on the background or the environment and objects in the environment in order to observe a glitch. One has to be in the right state of mind, and one's mind has to be ready to accept or observe that, which is truly unusual in the environment. So, if one's attention is fixed on themselves self-consciously relative to the tonic, that's going to be an extremely difficult orientation for the purposes of observing events of significance in the environment. Now, individuals do not always maintain the same orientation. Sometimes they form different orientations with different people, in different contexts, at different times. So, there's no single orientation or emotional orientation, which applies to a given individual. That being said, some individuals take on a second orientation more often than others do, and vice versa. So, in order to essentially establish a given orientation, one has to interpolate the methodology as applies to creating tension or releasing tension and mirroring. And what I mean by that is that if one purposely mirrors another individual, that's essentially taking on the role of the dominant interspersed by postural releases. So, one can simulate a particular orientation in a social grouping if one chooses. But one cannot force another individual to take on a given role within a social context. So, in some circumstances, it's not possible to, with certainty, establish a specific orientation. The origin of all social tension is through one of the four principles underlying the system, namely, dialectical pairing. Thoughts pair, which means that for every thesis there is an antithesis. The juxtaposition of the two produces tension. In social dynamics, 
the interaction of two individuals is as dialectical stand-ins. One contingent acts as the thesis. The second contingent acts as the antithesis. Together they produce social tension. The relationship between the tonic and the dominant produces a unidirectional path to emotional tension. As the tonic expresses the internal thoughts of some tension, that tension is transmitted to the posture, posing and body mechanics of the receiver through the medium of the dominant's mind. The dominant dissipates that tension through postural releases. On the larger scale, the consensual reality is juxtaposed with the shadow parts of our being, the inhibited impulses that are nevertheless expressed in our absence, or through body switching. The juxtaposition of these two realities, created by our presence and absence, is dialectical and pregnant with tension. Tension is the product of all these dialectical opposites, and it is that tension that drives us forward. But there is another pathway that produces tension, another pathway that drives us forward. It is the pathway of direct ground, or suppositional thought. Each suppositional thought alleviates tension, which is reflected by the contingency forming in its shadow. Think of the substance of reality as being joined by a myriad array of dialectical switches. These switches are the appendages of the moment, behind the outcome of seemingly chance events. These dialectical switches ordinarily work by countering thesis with antithesis, thereby preserving tension. But if one relies upon suppositional thought processes, one can predictably alter the outcome of events. Imagine for example that you are driving down a highway above the speed limit. Imagine for a moment that you have done something horribly wrong, such as committed a crime. The officer notices that you are speeding and pulls you over. As you see the police officer in your rear view, you have a choice. You can keep driving, or you can pull over, and resist arrest. You can do all the myriad things that he would expect you to do if you were guilty of a crime. Such would be the indirect ground pathway. Such would be the pathway which confirms the truth of that contingency. Or you can act as he would never expect you to, if indeed you were guilty of a crime. You can willingly, even happily submit yourself to his authority with the expectation that you will end up incarcerated. You can do so with reliance, with joy even, knowing full well what is about to happen. This is what it is to embrace suppositional thinking to embrace the moment, to act with faith. And here's the rub, because maybe, just maybe, your genuine, carefree demeanor, your mood, your attitude, your positivity, will provoke little caution, suspicion or alarm. And he will let you go, not realizing that you are guilty of a crime. Such is the pathway of direct ground. Now imagine flipping the script like this with every event you can't control. Imagine embracing the moment with such credulity that you can literally shape your own reactions, your own attitudes, and in so doing can you direct the hand of fate. In this episode, I'll be discussing some basic principles involved in social interactions while incorporating concepts such as direct ground, indirect ground, open and closed thoughts. The purpose of this, which is made difficult by the medium, is to develop a systemization, which might produce a notation tracking said interactions. First of all, any social interaction, in the moment, can be represented by four boxes, two corresponding to the first actor, and two corresponding to the second actor. These boxes can be filled with thoughts of three forms, open left-handed, 
open right-handed, and closed. The first box on the left of the first actor is the internal box. The second is the body posture, posing box. For the second individual, the first box on the left is the body posture, posing box and the second is the internal thought box. At time equals zero, the two boxes of the main actor will be filled and the internal box of the secondary actor will be filled. But the body posture box of the second actor is empty, because he, she is not acting. Now, there are a few basic rules regarding these thought pairings. First, a left-handed open thought may pair with the other two or itself. Only when it pairs with itself does it release tension. Otherwise, it produces tension. The same goes for a right-handed open thought. A closed thought always produces tension. Now, in the moment, when describing the two pairs of two boxes, the two on the left should be filled, while the external of the second pairing should be empty. This is because as the first actor acts on the second actor, it imports the internal thought of the first actor into the external box of the second actor. Inhibition can be represented through the four boxes is a left-handed open bonded with a right-handed open or a suppositional thought bonded with an open thought. Altruism can be represented by a matching or mirroring of the internal box of the second actor by the first actor. Competition can be represented by either the first pairing having an open right and left-handed pairing with the internal box of the first actor the opposing orientation of the second internal box or two left-handed or two right-handed with the opposing handed box in the internal box of the second pairing. Now, let's say you're dealing with an interaction between two individuals. In this example, the first individual is a police officer and the second is someone speeding. The first action, the thesis is the second actor speeding, indirect ground. The antithesis is the first actor putting on his siren to pull over the second actor, indirect ground. There are now two possibilities, both indirect ground, one, the second actor can slow down and stop, indirect ground. Second, the second actor can attempt to drive away, indirect ground. So let's say the second actor chooses to slow down and stop. Now the next action would ordinarily be the antithesis and choice of the first actor, to detain or release the second actor, but in this case the second actor can change the dialogue through suppositional thought. If the second actor acts by suppositional thought to submit, or act by letting go, the grounded thought remains with the directly grounded thought, which means that the first actor will mirror the second actor in settling upon a release. This is because the first actor still has two options to detain or release, but the release is the grounded thought, so it is fulfilled. Now, altruism is often a product of the negation of self. Negation of self often leads to postural releases in others, which manifests as outs. This is of course just another way of explaining the example set out a few moments ago. It's important to also note that you can structure the way you make statements to reflect an outward-inward or inward-outward direction of causality and thereby produce patterns as set out in the above example. It would be easier to visually represent the examples and concepts of this podcast episode. Unfortunately, this is not the right medium. However I hope that this episode at least introduced the topic in a way which was comprehensible to the listener. In this episode, we will be discussing negation, the internal mind and a new concept called channeling. As discussed in a previous episode, 
the creation of an internal mind, a private space for introspective thought, is the result of folds in time, the presence of negating thoughts. Typically this means that it is a cooperative endeavor, the result of closed mirroring thoughts on the part of two interacting individuals. The presence of these mirrored closed thoughts delimits the extent to which individuals can communicate, and the extent of the underlying gateway. In other words, when individuals do not maintain a baseline of mirrored closed thoughts the result is the experience of the unity of consciousness. The absence of an enclosure for thought processes generates open thought pairings. These open thought pairings form automatically between interacting individuals. In the presence of enclosure, it's the internal open thoughts which pair. This is what I call channeling. Now, to understand this graphically, in deference the first individual has a closed thought in its external box and an open in its internal. This transforms the open internal to the external of the second individual. But when the external closed is mirrored by the second individual we have enclosure and a fold in time, which preserves the pairing of the two internals. Representing folds in time, enclosure of thought, as mirrored closed thoughts is between two individuals, is akin to the recognition that closed postures imply a circumscribing of the sphere of activity of an individual or a limiting of his or her responsiveness to external communication. Closed postures deny our inclusion in an activity or discussion. In this episode we will be talking about the concept of deference and showing how physiological processes reflect its accumulation and also its social significance. To reiterate, deference is a one-way link between two minds created by verbal direction or body language or physical territoriality. When two people interact and they exhibit dialectical reactions, those reactions create social tension. This social tension is released by mirroring, which follows when the dominant exhibits postural releases in response to the actions of the tonic. People will recapitulate their postural releases in response to social tension when they encounter the tonic in sociality. This recapitulation affirms the deference and preserves the link between their minds. How does this work in practice? Well, Deference means that you will enact the expectations of another due to their social status. You will, for example, dress as they expect you to dress, or move the way they expect you to move, or laugh the way they expect you to laugh. You will act out according to the established conditioning of your body language. But again, how does this work, you ask? Well, when you release social tension through postural releases, that action is preserved in your muscle memory and linked to the associated person, preserved in the mind as an unconscious one-dimensional link from their mind to yours. But the link, once established, produces physiological changes in you. Because it is a sign of your affirmation of another's dominance, it links your deferent action to a flight or fight response, resulting in sympathetic nervous system activation, adrenaline release, increased skin conductance, sweat, and body odor. Thus, the recapitulation of that link calibrates one physiologically. The preservation of that link through one's archetypal associations and constellation becomes highly relevant to the ordinary functioning of one's body in socially relevant ways. The principles of substitution and displacement, created and triggered by physical territoriality, body language and invading someone else's body space, reaffirm deference, linked to muscle memory and the physiological processes explained earlier. When deference is threatened, 
The result is a spatial intersection of the two actors to re-establish the link through physical territoriality or body language. Eliminating deference is about eliminating the social cues that trigger its affirmation. This involves breaking continuity, whether spatially or in one's behavior. Breaking deference is about eliminating those intersections which preserve it, and the predictions or expectations that revive it. Social hierarchy is constructed out of the basic building block of deference. It ensures the unconscious cooperation of members of the same institution or group. In this episode, we will be returning to the biological mechanism of deference and discussing the physiological processes that underlie it, and how they relate to thought pairing. The biological mechanism of deference begins in the hypothalamus, which is the center of control in the human brain governing releasing and inhibitory hormones. The hypothalamus is intricately connected with the body's regulation of its rhythms and homeostasis. The hypothalamus has the following functions. Releasing hormones, maintaining daily physiological cycles, controlling appetite, managing sexual behavior, regulating emotional responses, regulating body temperature. It is important to note that the early chapters of How to Create a Glitch in the Matrix, the complete series, documented the process by which the physiological cycles could be undone. It is also clear in those early chapters that appetites are responsive to one's attempts to glitch. The centrality of the function of the hypothalamus in regulating key forms of behavior and specifically homeostasis, is indicative of its role in being the contact point or receiver of deference. I can update the process by which deference acts in the body. It begins in the hypothalamus, which sends hormones to the pituitary gland, which regulates the adrenal cortex in the kidneys and promotes the production of adrenaline or epinephrine. This causes an increase in heart rate and blood pressure, vasoconstriction, sweating, the flight or fight response and interference with the apocrine glands, which produce socially relevant hormones that induce arousal. Externally, Deference can be understood to be a closed thought. The process by which deference inculcates the activity of the hypothalamus toward the upregulation of epinephrine and downregulation of other hormones is through the regulation of the body's homeostasis and bodily rhythms. Every closed thought engenders a physiological reaction. The presence of a continuous physical threat produces the release of cortisol by the adrenal cortex which preserves in the rhythms of the body its antagonistic response to the intentions of a tonic. If we understand thought notation properly, we can say that deference is the presence of a closed thought in the external box of a subject, which imposes the internal box of the subject onto the external box of the object. When this produces two open thoughts of common orientation we have attention release, and emotional coupling or postural releases. When we have a non-matching pairing for the object, this is pure deference. Meaning, there is really only one mechanism of interaction between people. Only a question of orientation. All social involvement is deference. It is also true that the hypothalamus regulates the activity of the sex organs. In men, epinephrine is associated with lower aldosterone production. The interrelatedness of aldosterone which governs salt concentration in the body, tells us that the fine-tuning of our homeostasis is directly linked. Likewise, testosterone regulation is impacted by epinephrine as well. Externally, when we observe deference it is commonly perceived of as acceleration or breaking in doing everyday tasks. 
but the definition of deference is that it is any social action which we do unconsciously which benefits someone else. Deference can also be observed as postural releases, since release of tension goes part and parcel with the imposition of direction through closed thoughts. As the sex organs are modulated by the hypothalamus, which modulate the behavior of others through deference, the sex organs function for the group, as a social organism, very much like the hypothalamus acts for the individual. In this episode we will be linking our discussion of duality to the biological mechanism of deference as set out in previous episodes. First of all, in earlier podcasts we talked about how the sympathetic nervous system is conditioned by deference, which results from the production of adrenaline through the biological mechanism of deference. I won't return to the subject matter of those episodes, except to say that adrenaline is the key component of this system, which begins with postural releases in response to social tension, resulting in the formation of deference, a one-way link between two minds, resulting in the linking of one's unconscious mind to the intentions of another. To take a step back, we already established that there are two forms of calibration, parasympathetic and sympathetic. One results from deference, namely, sympathetic, and the other results from emotional coupling, namely parasympathetic. These two forms of calibration are competitive, which is to say, given individuals will form relationships which comprise one, the other, or both at different times or in different places. Likewise, tension is released by parasympathetic calibration. It is restored by sympathetic calibration. Open thoughts of common orientation release tension and reflect parasympathetic calibration. Closed thoughts or open thoughts of opposing orientation reflect sympathetic calibration. Now, each form of calibration produces a different kind of wave within the common mind created by gateways and intersections socially. The first, called S-waves are sympathetic waves composed of tension-producing waves. The second composed of tension-releasing waves are called P-waves. Now, social activity is mediated by these two types of waves. Emotional coupling produces P-waves. Deference produces S-waves. These waves travel as thought pairings through the visual cues which we exhibit and the gateways which are generated by social exchanges. Now, to bring it back to dualism, S-waves are phallic in symbolism within the unconscious mind. P-waves are receptive. This means that S-waves stimulate adrenaline production in others and P-waves stimulate acetylcholine production. The result of this dichotomy is felt throughout the autonomic nervous system including the digestive system. As a result of S-waves digestion is inhibited. As a result of P-waves, it is stimulated. On any given day, people will often receive numerous S-waves and P-waves. Social relationships regulate us through S-waves and P-waves. When we are a recipient of repeated S-waves our social network will regulate us by sending us P-waves. This means that bursts of S-waves are cushioned, so to speak, by bursts of P-waves. The end result of this relationship, surprisingly enough, is flatulence. Let me explain. In the small intestines, most heavily responsible for digestion, the enteric nervous system is highly impacted by S-waves which slow digestion through adrenaline. When this process is reversed through the receipt of P-waves, the undigested food has often made its way into the colon, where sugars such as cellulose are digested by colon bacteria, 
producing hydrogen sulfide gas which becomes flatulence. What this tells us is a few things. First, when we form bonds which reflect emotional coupling, the tonic will receive, receive, parasympathetic or P waves. The dominant will receive S waves. When someone acquires our deference, we are receiving S waves. The combination of these waves from our immediate or engaged social system predominate, but so too is involved our entire social network in regulating us. The end result of this regulation is a biological equilibrium or calibration which reflects our impulses, bodily rhythms and circadian rhythms. That's the end of the podcast for today. If you enjoyed it please like, comment and subscribe.